Please turn with me to James chapter 4 and verse 6. As we begin, I wanted to do a, a quick survey. I'm just curious, how many, how many genuinely humble people do we have in here? Go ahead, raise your hand. If you're, if you're genuinely humble. Okay, so I, I interpret that a couple of different ways, possibly. One is we have no humble people at all, so nobody raised their hands. Or you're all very humble and know that it wouldn't look good to raise your hand. Either way, humility is a pretty uh, tricky subject, isn't it? What, what is it exactly, and how do you get it? And once you've got it, how do you keep it? James is going to continue his discussion of pride and humility as we continue in chapter 4. And he's going to give us a couple of very concrete applications for how we avoid pride and pursue humility. But before we get into those applications, I want us to uh, get our terms straight again. We had... Our missions conference last week, so we've been out of James for a week. I want to back up a little bit, and I want us to read together, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 6. But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. James tells us that God sets himself against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is pride? Well, when we think of the English word pride, uh, sometimes we think of it in positive terms. You know, I'm proud of my kids when they work hard and they accomplish something. I am proud of them when they display remarkable character. I praise them for that. I want them to have a really strong self-image and and confidence. That's a good connotation for pride. But the Bible never speaks of pride in positive terms. It always speaks of pride in negative terms. The word for pride in Greek is a compound word. It's a compound word between a verb and a prefix. I put the prefix last, but it helps us understand it in English. It's the verb to appear and the prefix above. To appear above. Not to be above, but to appear above. And that word for appearance we noted a couple weeks ago is the word from which we get phantom. Pride is a phantom. Pride is not reality because we are not above others. We're all made in the image of God. And we are certainly not above God. Greeks used another word for pride. They, they called it hubris. It was the character quality displayed by some who thought they were equal to the gods or above the gods. And periodically the gods had to put a smack down on them and show them, no, you're not. You are not all that. No matter how great you may be among humanity, that is not the realistic assessment of who you are. Pride is an inflated opinion of self. It is an inaccurate opinion of self. It's simply not true. That Greek concept of hubris is consistent with the biblical concept of thinking we are something when in fact we are not. Not understanding and living comfortably in our place within the hierarchy of the universe. That's pride. C.S. Lewis once wrote, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That is God. 
Pride is thinking you are something that you are not. Humility is the opposite of that. It means literally to be low-lying. To be low-lying. Humility is an accurate opinion of self. It's understanding that I am broken and sinful. And that God is not broken. God is not sinful. God is great and he is holy and he's awesome and he is powerful. He is all that I am not. And I see him as he is. And consequently, I'm able to see myself as I am. That is genuine humility. And James says God sets himself against those who have an inflated opinion of themselves, an inaccurate opinion of themselves. But he gives his grace to those who are low-lying. And in fact, the promise comes with it that he will exalt them at the proper time. When they lay low before God, God will reach down and he will lift them up in the appropriate way and at the appropriate time. That is grace, which we said means favor. Simply put, the grace of God is favor. We normally think of it as unmerited favor in terms of our salvation. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, the, the dorea, the free gift not as a result of any works you should do so that no man may boast and think he's something that he's not. It's the unmerited favor of God. He looks upon us as we are broken and sinful and his enemies and he says, let me reach down and make you my friends. I will reconcile you because you can't reconcile yourself. I will remove that debt of sin and that barrier between us because you cannot remove it. And I will heal your brokenness. That is the beauty of the gospel message. And it is exceedingly humble for every person. There are no great people at the foot of the cross. Just sinners. Broken. We all come exactly the same way with our hands out as beggars saying, God, heal me, forgive me, be merciful to me, the sinner. And when we do that, God can give us his grace, his unmerited favor and blessing in Jesus Christ because we don't think we're bringing anything. We're just receiving from him. So he can pour out into us as empty vessels. He can give us Christ. That's the gospel. The removal of our debt forever just because of the work God has done, not because of what we have done. That's the grace of God. Now, having believed, God's grace continues in our life. It doesn't shut down. It doesn't shut off. It comes in the form of power or strength to endure, particularly in this context for these people. They're enduring suffering, and they do so by the grace of God. Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul said, God has spoken to me, and he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul was feeling exceedingly weak. He had some thorn in the flesh. Doesn't name it. I think so that we can all relate to it. It's, it's something that is nagging him. It is besetting him. It's, it's, it's crushing him. And he wants to get rid of it. And he asks and he asks and he asks. And God says no. Because if I remove it, you won't depend upon me. So I'm going to leave it there. Because you can't know my grace unless you are, in fact, weak. And you are weak, but sometimes you don't know you're weak. And so I'm going to leave things in your life that remind you that you are weak and broken and sinful and in need of me. Because that is when you know power. My power is perfected when you are weak. That is the grace of God. And so when we stay low before God, then he reaches down and he lifts us up. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. What does this look like practically in our lives? Like I said, James is going to give us two very specific applications. The first relates to how we interact with others and how we speak of others. The second, in terms of how we interact with ourselves and our future and our own planning. So let's look at the first example. Speak humbly of others. I want you to read with me chapter 4 and verse 11. James says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Just who do you think you are? James says, don't speak against your brother. That's what the word means literally. And it's a word that's interesting in Greek. It can have pretty broad connotations. Let me give you just a few illustrations. First, it can refer to slander. Slander, that is speaking things that are not true about another person. That could be publicly, that could be privately. To speak against includes slander. Psalm chapter 101, verse 5, it says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. God, what do you think about slander? (laughs) Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Don't speak against your neighbor, publicly or privately. Don't say things that are not true. To speak against also, though, includes gossip. This doesn't really cast the net much more uh, widely because gossip actually includes things that are true but simply shouldn't be said. My rule of thumb is this. Is it my story to tell? Even if it is true, is it your story to tell? If not and you tell it, that's gossip. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends, even when the story is true. That's gossip. To speak against also includes ridicule, mocking someone else's weaknesses or faults. This is a favorite pastime of school children, to ridicule. I was uh, saddened but not surprised uh, a couple months back, my son came home and he was describing uh, how his friends have begun to interact. They ridicule one another. It's sport. You know, who, who can give the best cut? You know, that's, that's really how you excel on the playground. This, these are the people to admire, the ones who can cut the most deeply. You know, and I, I, was, I was saddened because I remember things that people had said to me that I still remember that cut. It's not surprised because I can remember things that I said to others because it's exactly what I did. It's ridicule. And normally, uh, we grow out of that because we realize you can't keep a lot of friends if that's just kind of what you do as a habit. Those just aren't fun interactions to constantly have where you just cut, 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 cut. They say that uh, you can predict actually divorce by the ratio of positive, encouraging words to words that are ridiculing. And it only takes a few. If you have basically like one out of a hundred every week, you're setting yourself on a bad trajectory. Marriage can't sustain that kind of interaction. 
It also includes insubordination, rebellion against authority, uh, justly placed authority. Miriam and Aaron said were were accused of or guilty of uh, speaking against Moses. Now Moses wasn't perfect. But Moses was the divinely ordained authority. Moses was the man. They spoke against him. They had pretty severe consequences in their lives, didn't they? Insubordination. Students normally, again, you grow out of ridicule by the time you hit college. You don't interact that way. But insubordination is one of the favorite pastimes of college students. Okay, listen up. You may not think of it in these terms. But there are divinely ordained authorities in your lives. They're called professors. And I know among students, one of your favorite pastimes is to complain about professors, mock the prof, right? It may start on substantive things about the way he teaches or whatever, but you know, once things really get going, you can start talking about the way he or she dresses or their hair or lack of hair or whatever. You know, I mean, it just, that's insubordination because that's a rightly imposed authority in your life. Respect, honor. When the complaining starts, don't participate. Okay, stop. I remember at one point, very specifically in my college career, feeling really convicted about this. As we'd sit around, we'd complain about professors. I felt really convicted. I thought, you know, this just isn't right. I'm not showing respect. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to stop. When it, when it starts, I'm, I'm going to walk away. Or I'm going to find something positive to say. Like, you know, he makes a really nice syllabus or whatever. I don't know. Come up with something, right? But I'm not going, I'm not going to dive in there. I'm not going there with everyone else because it was conviction of mine. You know, it was an amazing thing. I began to, to consciously reach out to my professors. I would go to their offices, even when I didn't need anything. I wasn't asking questions. I'd just go to build a relationship, to show respect, to build trust. And it was a remarkable thing. I got to share the gospel with many, many of my professors simply because I respected them. Students. I see the profs going like this. Yeah, you know, come on. You can open doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way that you speak or the way that you don't speak. Okay? Do not speak against one another. That includes slander, gossip, ridicule, even insubordination. Second, do not judge one another. Read with me again chapter 4, verse 11. James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. What does it mean to judge? Well, the word is not necessarily, again, a negative word. It means simply to distinguish, differentiate, or separate. And so I want to make a a distinction here. James is not talking about discernment. Christians, we need to display discernment. The elders of the church are told, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. That is, evaluate the character of that person before you elevate them to a position of leadership. What is that? Well, that's a type of judgment that's not negative. It's discernment. College students, you need to be discerning about who you go out with. That's a form of judgment that's good. Use good judgment. That's discernment. That's differentiating between things that are good and bad or things that are good and the best. So he's not talking about discernment. He is not talking about admonition. Periodically, we need to rebuke one another for sin. In fact, what is James doing here? Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? (laughs) 
That's what James is doing. He is admonishing. He's admonishing the unruly. Sometimes believers have to admonish one another. Nor is he talking about a more severe form of admonition, which is church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders, that is, people outside the church or non-Christians? Do you not judge those within the church? He's saying to the Corinthian believers, it's a rhetorical question, don't you judge those who are within the church? Yes, the answer is yes, you should. They were not, in fact. They had a lot of sin and immorality in their church, and they weren't judging it. They weren't calling sin, sin. Jesus describes what this process can look like. Matthew chapter 18 If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church or the assembly. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is discipline. That's discipline. Now, this is not a formula, but these are guidelines. It appears that is what's happening at the end of the book of James. Look at James chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's admonition. It's rebuke. It may even be discipline. But notice in the case of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what was going on in the church of Corinth, or what Jesus advises us in Matthew chapter 18, or what's happening here in James chapter 5, the goal is always the restoration of the sinning Christian. The goal is always restoration. Notice also the pattern is go first in private. Go first in private. You don't find the sin, discover the sin, and blow a trumpet and announce the sin. You go in private. Why? So that the person can move back from the sin privately. That is, love covers a transgression. Not ignoring a transgression, but giving the person a safe way to repent and turn from sin. We'll talk more about that when we get to James chapter 5. But the point is, the goal of this kind of judgment is always restoration to fellowship. That's not the setting in James chapter 4. Hey, what's going on in James chapter 4 is this. Judgment in terms of publicly pointing out someone's faults or sins in order to ostracize the other person. Read with me again chapter 4 verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brother, and he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. He's saying Don't blow a trumpet and announce the other person's sin in order to win. The goal was not restoration to fellowship. The goal was to conquer the other person. To get the other person removed from fellowship. James says that is sin. Don't speak against one another. Don't don't ridicule and slander and gossip. And do not judge. Don't publicly point out someone else's faults or sins in order to win over them. Why? Well, it should be obvious. But James gives us an interesting argument. He says, because we become lawbreakers when we do that. Again, read with me chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother 
actually speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. What is James saying? James is saying that when you speak against a brother, you are actually, in this way, you are actually breaking the law. Which law? Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the king's law, the most important law, the essence of the law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're doing well. But when you speak against a brother or sister, you slander and you gossip and you, you try to crush that other person with your words, publicly or privately, you are breaking the royal law. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. Consequently, you are breaking the law. I want you to turn back with me, keep your place here in James, and turn back all the way to Leviticus chapter 19. I always love an opportunity to bring Leviticus into a sermon because it happens so rarely. But James clearly had Leviticus 19 in mind when he was writing this letter. I want you to notice all of the parallels between Leviticus 19 and and the book of James. Begin with me, chapter 19, verse 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. That's James 1 verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion is this. Take care of the poor and widows and orphans. Leave something from them. A genuine mature faith is not saying be warmed and be filled, but not making the maximum profit on your field and leaving some around the edges. So you don't say be warmed, be filled, and give them nothing. You give from your abundance. That's James chapter 2. Verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the the name of your God, I am the Lord. That's James chapter 5, verse 12. Swearing falsely. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages... Of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. That's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That's James 2, verses 1 through 13. You shall not go about as as a slanderer among your people. James 4.11, you're not to act as, uh, and you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that is the essence of the law. That's the marrow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But if you slander and gossip and ridicule, you have broken the law. The very heart of the law. Second, we usurp God's authority. Turn back with me to James chapter 4. If you are a judge of the law, you're not a doer of the law. 
You're saying that law doesn't apply to me. I'm above the law. And if I'm above the law, I'm above the lawgiver. Verse 12, but there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But just who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? What is the essence of pride? Usurping God's authority. That is not understanding what is my rightful place in the hierarchy of the universe. God is here and I am, I am here. So to usurp his authority is the essence of pride. So practically speaking, when you see sin in someone else, how do you deal with that? Oh, you have to wait till chapter 5. You've got to stick around. All right? Let's look at James' second example this morning. Read with me chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, I want to make a couple of uh, caveats. James is not condemning planning. He is not condemning planning. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Plan, plan. You want to retire someday? You should save some money. Plan ahead. You should do that. He praises the ants. Why? Because they plan ahead for winter. They gather now, so they've got something later on. Plan. Planning is not bad. Remember when Tristan and I were first married, we took a vacation to Colorado, and we decided that we would go camping on our vacation. And I had camped a lot. And I'd done a lot of camping. She had camped not at all, like zero, no camping ever. And, you know, but since I'd camped so much, I thought, I don't need a plan. I just, I'll just throw everything in. I just throw all my gear in. I don't need a plan for a camping trip because I know how to camp. So we got there and we stayed in, you know, a, a hotel one night, a lodge. And then let's camp tonight. Let's go do it. So we're just driving along the road. And I said, you know, let's find a place. Don't worry. I, I'll just pull out the map and we'll find something. So we're driving along and I saw this road, mountain road went off. I thought, well, let's take that road. So we took it off and looked out and there was, there was a nice flat area. I thought, you know, that'd be a great place to camp. We got plenty of water. We don't need water there. Nice view. So got out of the car, hauled everything out of the car, you know, tent and sleeping bags and sleeping mattresses and pads and a little camp stove and everything. I began to set up the tent and, and, and I began to feel like I got some mosquitoes on me. And I turned around and Trista's just jumping around, you know, mosquitoes all over. I look and it's just like this thick gray cloud. I mean, it was just, I've never seen them so thick. I mean, it was just horrible. So I quickly packed up the tent, you know, and I put everything back in, threw it back in the car. So we'll find another spot. So we drove again. So no problem. I know how to camp. I'm a great camper. And we're driving along and I found a spot. It was just down off the road. It was right next to a river. It was awesome. And so we pulled off, I unloaded everything again, I set up the tent by now, you know, it's getting dark, I'm setting up the tent in the dark, and I make a little stove, and we're starting to have a little drink, and the sun's going down, it was beautiful, it was perfect, the mosquitoes aren't there, I'm loving it. And as we're sitting there, and we're enjoying our kind of private time, a, a truck drove by, and I want you to just visualize with me for just a moment, it was, it was one of those old, really, really, really old, small Toyota pickups, okay, and it's climbing up the road, and on the back of this tiny, small Toyota pickup, 
there was a full-size Chevy sideways on the back of that pickup. Okay, so he's going up the road, like, just crawling up the road. And it was two huge white men wearing no shirts and having about half of their teeth. And they looked at us and just smiled as they drove past us. You ever seen Deliverance? (laughs) And (laughs) Tracy was sure that they would come back and kill us at night. And so she slept not at all, and that was our last camping trip together. So um, sometimes it pays to plan ahead, right? James is not condemning planning. Planning can be good. James is also not condemning making a profit. Okay, this is not an anti-capitalism verse. Jesus built a lot of his parables on the assumption that businessmen want to and need to make a profit, and that's okay. What is he saying? James is condemning presumptuous planning. Presumptuous planning is planning as if we're in control and we are unaccountable. That's what James is getting after. Read with me again. Chapter 4, verse 13. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. I observe five things that these merchants are presumptuous about. They're presumptuous about time. Today or tomorrow we'll do it. We'll decide. We'll decide when we go. We're in control of time. Every time I start a project, my wife asks me, how long is this going to take? And I give, her, I give her the most accurate estimation that is humanly possible, and she multiplies it by three and adds two hours. <laughs> Last project I did was plumbing, and I, I hate plumbing, and I'm incompetent at plumbing, and I ended up taking five trips to Lowe's before the thing was done. I thought it would take 30 minutes. It took a day, like a whole day. You think you're in control of time. You're not in control of time at all. They also are presumptuous about place. Today or tomorrow, whichever day, we will go to this city or that city. And we'll determine it. We'll decide. We'll decide where we're going to go. I was on a mission trip one time in Central Asia. And over the weekend, I had an opportunity to go to Dushanbe, Tajikistan. That's the capital of Tajikistan. I thought, this is awesome. I'm going. I always wanted to go. I had my bags packed. I was going to leave Friday night. I'd come back Sunday had my airline tickets. I had everything purchased. I'd go and I'd get to do some training with these pastors. And, and I was so excited about it. The plane was leaving very late. It was about 2 a.m. My bags are packed. I'm sitting by the door. My driver came. He showed up and he said, you're not going to Dushanbe. There's been an uprising and there are men standing at the airport on the tarmac with their swords drawn. <laughs> you're not going. And I've never been back. I was wanted to go. But we're not in control, ultimately, of when we go or where we go. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city. We'll spend a year there. We'll do what we want. And then we'll engage in business. This is what we will do. No, I never thought I would live in Texas for all these years. I'm going to live 
I want to live overseas. I'm going to live in a foreign culture. I want to speak different languages. If not, you know, if I'm stuck in the U.S., I'm going to live in the mountains. I'm living in Colorado. I'm living in Oregon. I'm living in Washington. I'm living in Texas. And, you know, I look back and I say, thank you, God, that you were in charge because I've been so blessed in this place for so long. And my family moved. It was like about every three years. Longest we'd lived in any place was six years. And now I've been back in College Station for 20 years. That was God's plan. I never thought I'd be a pastor. You know, as kids are going around and they're saying, yeah, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a police officer. I didn't go, I want to be a pastor. <laughs> you know, it went on my radar to be a pastor. I'd be a professional baseball player. Hockey, professional hockey, that'd be my fallback. You know, they finally figured it out that that wasn't going to happen and kind of grew out of that. Went to marine biology. And I thought, well, no, I'm, I'm going to be a professor. Getting a little more realistic. But I, I didn't want to be a pastor. I just didn't want to do that. Even when I went to seminary, I, I didn't really want to do that. I just wanted to learn the Bible. I've told you that story before. I didn't want to be a pastor. It wasn't my plan. So I always find it very interesting when students come in and they, they want my advice on career planning and they want, you know, give, give me your perspective on it. And it's funny because a lot of times, I mean, really, a lot of times they'll sit down and they'll say, you know, I'm thinking about this or that, but I just want to tell you ahead of time, I'm not going into ministry. I go, like I'm going to rush them. You know, I'm going to put the rush on them and by the time you leave here, you're going to seminary. I'm going to make that happen in your life. Don't come ask my advice. Right? You know, I, I don't know what God wants. It wouldn't push you that direction. I, but don't ever say what you will or will not do. Where you will go and where you won't go. How long you'll stay and when you'll leave. And what's going to happen when you get there? Today or tomorrow we'll leave and we'll go to such and such a city. Maybe this city or that city. We'll stay there for a year. We will engage in business and we will come back with a profit. Because we're in charge. James says that is presumptuous planning. So, why does he condemn it? First of all, because we don't know the future. Verse 14, yet you do not know, and and really this should read literally, but people such as you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're planning a year in advance, but really you don't know. You don't know this afternoon. Make a plan for this afternoon. But ultimately you don't know, do you? You don't know what the next day holds. Proverbs 21 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Second, our lives are fleeting. But people such as you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while. You're a puff of smoke. When I was in college, I memorized Psalm 39 verse 4 and 5. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, that's nine inches, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. 50, 60, 70 years, and then eternity. Surely every man at his best, your very best, it's just... That's the length of your life relative to the eternality of a great God. 
And I, I memorized that because as I was going through college, I thought, you know, I really started to begin to have a sense for the first time that my life is short and I really want to make it count. I want to invest in things that are enduring and lasting. So God, let me understand the length of my life. I always also memorized Psalm 90, verse 12. This is Moses' only psalm that he wrote. He said, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What is a heart of wisdom? One that recognizes our lives are fleeting. They're just a breath. They're just a moment. So invest them in God's glory. In things that actually genuinely last forever. So, practically speaking, how do we plan humbly for the future? Read with me in chapter 4 and verse 15. Let's read verse 14 again. But people such as you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, let alone a year from now. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. How do we plan humbly for the future? Well, I would say, do make plans. Again, James is not saying, don't plan. If the Lord wills, we will do such and such. This is what we're going to plan to do something. But we will plan it if God wills. In other words, acknowledging God's power. The will of God is sovereign in your life. God's will is powerful. If God wills, then we will follow these plans. And if he does not will, then we will change our plans and we will submit to him and we will follow him. And we will be humble and we will go low and acknowledge that he is great. Corey Ten Boom, wonderful quote, I thought. If you don't, can't write all this down, again, remember, slides will be on the, posted on the internet. She said, hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> because he will, because he's powerful, because he's sovereign. So go easy in his direction. Second, acknowledging God's purpose. God's will is not arbitrary. God's will is for a very specific and definitive purpose, and that is to bring honor and glory to his reputation, to his name. That's why we exist. And so we plan our lives in submission to his power and his authority, but consistent with God's purposes in our lives. Again, one of my favorite life verses is Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. It says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are for the Lord. So make your plans accordingly. Speak accordingly. As those who are, in fact, lowly. In front of a great God. I'll leave you with one quote from a man named John Riskin. He once said, I believe that the first test of a truly great person is humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of one's own power or hesitation in speaking one's opinion, but really great people have a feeling that the greatness is not in them, but through them, that they could not do or be anything else than God has made them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a true estimation of ourselves in light of who you are and your greatness and your power, in light of your eternality, 
and the fact that we are just a vapor. And yet, Father, you have chosen to give us dignity because you've made us in your image. And so I pray, Father, that recognizing that we are in your image, but being lowly before you, we would speak to one another in humility. We would speak words of life to one another. I pray, Father, that we would make plans, but we would make them in submission to your will and for your glory and not for ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to be genuinely humble people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.